You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you are just joining, we began this week's episode with Raymond Chang, the president and co-founder of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Earlier this week, the collective issued a statement calling on Christians to preach and teach against anti-Asian racism and to denounce the murders on March 16th as a massacre. The statement calls Christians and church leaders to, quote, confess our own failure to disciple our congregants out of Christian nationalism and to stem dehumanizing and objectifying falsehoods about women and racially minoritized groups in our country. As of this recording, the organization has gathered over 3,000 signatures from faith and lay leaders across the country. And they're not alone. Religious denominations and faith communities are issuing statements, expressing solidarity, and organizing vigils with a message, stop the hate. They are also calling for an understanding that the rise in anti-Asian violence is not new, but has long roots in American history. There is also a growing interest in the role of religion, specifically conservative theology. News reports from the New York Times and Religion News Service cited that the shooter was religious and professed to be a Christian who was recently baptized at the Crabapple Baptist Church, where he was a member until this past Sunday, when the church removed him from their membership roster. The shooter's statements to police citing sex addiction and a desire to reduce temptation brought increased scrutiny to the extreme abstinence movement known as purity culture. Religious studies scholar Julie Ingersoll wrote about the religious cultural phenomena that extols extreme abstinence as a spiritual value. To learn more, I spoke with Ingersoll earlier this week from her home in Tallahassee, Florida. Ingersoll begins by discouraging attempts to disentangle the motives. the efforts to separate out whether this is a racial hate or ethnic hate crime from his assertion that it's a sex addiction, I think that that has led to us misreading what actually is happening in ways that are really important because I think most people don't understand what these conservative evangelicals mean when they say that they have a sex addiction because this is in no way separable from a hate crime against women, or in this particular case, a hate crime against Asian Americans. When you read the word sex addiction, what are you reading? Because you just said that if you don't know evangelical culture, if you don't know the history of the relationship and view of women and sexuality through an evangelical lens, you may miss what that term means. What does it mean? Yes, and it's one of those terms that has another meaning. So you don't even realize you've missed it, right? I think that mental health professionals are somewhat skeptical about whether this can really be considered an addiction, um, but that is actually outside my lane. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to weigh in on whether it's real or not real or what, but there is a thing out there in the world called sex addiction, and there are 12-step programs that are like Alcoholics Anonymous that work dealing with people who believe they have sex addiction, and there are many people who believe this is a thing. Okay, we'll set that aside. In the evangelical subculture, there are such strong restrictions on expressions of sexuality that most people can't even comprehend. So it's not just about committing adultery. It's about um, having lustful thoughts. So your very mind itself is at war with you. In fact, there's um, 
one of these purity culture books is called Every Young Man's Battle, right? So there's this perception that Christians are literally at war with their physicality with regard to sex. And so anytime they, quote unquote, fall into sin, um, which might mean visiting a prostitute, but it might mean, I, I have a specific example. Someone I was interviewing, talking to me about being in a garage, having their car repaired, and there was a poster on the wall that wasn't porn exactly, right? It was objectifying and all of that, but it was just a pinup poster. And he looked at it and he experienced this deep self-condemnation over having his eyes averted to this poster, right? So you have to look at it in the context of this really um, powerful construct in which a person is brought to experience themselves as utterly depraved, often over issues of sexuality. And in that context, when somebody who uses pornography or visits sex workers or whatever they're doing in that realm, they label themselves as sex addicts. And often it's, it's a way in which men get let off the hook in these kinds of communities. So the responsibility for preventing lust falls on the women as part of this purity culture. And the, the men are given this out and they'll go to these Christian-based counseling centers to deal with their sex addiction. And then they are treated as though everything is fine. And it, it does end up being perceived as the women's fault for being um, temptresses. So now you're starting to hear the stuff that was going on in this context. So he perceived these Asian women, not as women, not as people, but as temptations, temptations that he could reasonably eliminate. And that is embedded in America's long history of eroticizing Asian women, sexualizing women in general, and then blaming the women for the ways in which the men act out. And you have all of this in the context of what, what has become called purity culture. You're talking about a construct in which women are not viewed as human beings that are able to express themselves without consequence. You're talking about uh, an environment in which there is an ideological message to young men and older men, I imagine, just men, that the impulse, the sexual attraction that they may feel, the emotional responses, the physical responses they may have to stimulation are outside of their control and that the people who are responsible are women. But those women are not seen as having the same dignity or the same no, sense no. of agency. I appreciate you weaving that together because I think that when we hear the echoing of this language from law enforcement that he suffered from sex addiction, that it is somehow not a hate crime, that it is not misogyny, many have responded saying, wait a minute, based on what you have studied, why do you think there is a desire by some to create silos here? When you look at the way in which the church has responded, what do you see happening? I think there's a couple of answers to your question. And the first one is a complex interwoven set of motivations, as you observed. And I don't know that we could expect law enforcement to have the, uh, the under, you know, I get to spend all my time reading about this stuff. 
right? Law enforcement have all kinds of things to do. So they don't have the expertise to understand the interrelationship between those two things. I don't know, given who they tend to be, whether they would even have the um, motivation or curiosity to try to understand it, but that's even a second level step. Part of the reason that the law enforcement people take this idea of sex addiction and go with it is because we've got this widespread uh, perception on the part of white people in America that racism isn't real. So here's sex addiction and, and oh, is it going to be racism? Well, no, no, it's sex addiction. And that's a nicely packaged thing that the law enforcement people can, in the way that they are reading it, it seems like a viable motive and it sits more comfortably in our world that privileges white people to the point where we can actually think that racism isn't a thing because we don't experience it, so it must not be real. I think that's one of the explanations. Obviously, his church doesn't perceive the attitudes towards sex as misogyny. Like That's not what they think it is. They think it's just what the Bible says, right? So they're not going to embrace a reading of this that weaves it all together either. It's much simpler for them to see it as, in their view, a perversion of their teaching on sex and morality than it is to see it as this deep-seated racism toward Asian Americans. And I don't think, to be clear, I don't think this is just on the part of the church. Going back to what we were talking about with the way that people want to separate things off into little packages, people do that with religion more than anything, right? Religion is, an, is a label that we give to this way that certain people like to live in the world or choose to live in the world, whether their religion is Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism, right? We have all these boxes that we can put them in neatly and then we can, you know, all right, good, we're done with that. We can set it over here. But identity doesn't work that way, right? It's all interwoven. And going all the way back to our earliest immigration laws, the way that Asian women were treated as immigrants presumed the high possibility that they were prostitutes. And we have this perception of these exotic women and it plays out in our media. And so it's not just the fault of the church. This is something that's deeply embedded in American culture. And Asian Americans have been trying to tell us this for a really long time. But until something like this happens, those of us who don't see it on a day-to-day -day basis find it hard to make sense out of. But Asian American people have been telling us this happens to them for a really long time. The impulse that so many have, which is to try to make sense of an event. You know, when something traumatic happens and there's a loss of life and it threatens civil society, it threatens the order, there is this desire, one, to make sense of it. And there's also mm -hmm. a desire to maintain stability, to maintain kind of continuity of the system. As we look at and take closer kind of cues to hearing and understanding the history, the legacy that you're describing, I think it's also important to not just step completely away from the legacy of purity culture. You wrote in 2019 about extreme abstinence. What did and how did modern purity culture emerge and what did it look like? So this, again, though, gets back to this trying to separate things out and put them in simple boxes, because people, when they talk about religion, they want to talk about a little subset of theological beliefs, mm -hmm. and that's their category of religion. And they don't necessarily recognize the way in which religions are cultures, okay? Purity culture, first of all, is based in this idea that uh, sex before heterosexual marriage is sin, okay? First, some people will respond by saying, but Christianity's always believed that, and that is true. 
But the reason it's called purity culture and not purity theology is because it's so much broader than just the, that kind of belief or even a more developed belief than the idea about sexual purity. Purity culture, the thing that we're calling purity culture is the evolution of that belief structure into a whole cultural system, kind of maybe culminating in the 1990s with a really widespread production of videos and books and meetings and conferences and father-daughter purity balls and bracelets that people would wear and all of these things in which particularly Christian school and Christian homeschool people were raised. And it carries with it much more detailed rules and regulations about what it means to be sexually pure. And this is another place where I think people who are outside this culture or who haven't read widely in this culture don't understand what I mean because they say, well, okay, purity, fine, that's okay. But what purity culture teaches about this is, for example, that women who are too outspoken and talkative are drawing undue attention to themselves that results in men lusting after them. So it even comes down to when you're allowed to speak. It's not just don't wear strapless tank tops to school, although that's there. It's so much broader than that. Purity culture went along with a practice that was called courtship, which was this idea that young people shouldn't date or have much interaction with the opposite sex unless that interaction was overseen by the girl's father and with a plan toward pursuing the possibility of marriage. So this is this kind of complete gender dichotomy in how people live in the world and how they perceive other people, right? So suddenly men are taught that the only possible reasonable pure interaction you might have with a woman is to consider marrying her and having children with her. You also get out of this the thing that's called the Billy Graham rule. There were uh, all kinds of male religious leaders who made their personal rule that they wouldn't be alone in any space with a woman unless their wife was also there. And on one level, you can see why that might make sense to somebody. But at the same time, if you perceive of women as existing for the purpose of being pursued for marriage and children, then okay, that makes sense. But if you recognize that women have jobs and careers and they work in offices, the ability of a woman to pursue a career and be successful is tremendously inhibited if she can never be in any space alone with somebody who has authority, especially in a subculture that separates men and women and gives all the authority to men. So in theory, you can't really be around anybody with any authority if you're a woman. So purity culture in this period had really broad, expansive tentacles that shaped everything about how people interacted with each other in these churches. And you now have a number of people who grew up being shaped by this, who are writing books like Linda K. Klein and uh, talking about it on Twitter. In fact, I got an email this morning from a woman who just discovered that there's a whole world out there explaining this trauma that she had experienced growing up that she'd been trying to make sense of, but didn't know that other people had been impacted by it in the way that she had. Hmm. So much of what you're describing leaves women to view their liability as of being a temptress. And remember when in the last presidential election where there were some religious leaders who started labeling Vice President Harris as a Jezebel. Remember this? Yeah, what was that about? Well, Jezebel is a temptress in the Bible. Yeah, that's what that's about. And Vice President Kamala Harris's mother is 
Asian. She's well, there's Asian. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't even thought about that part yet. Yeah. The way to maintain purity in purity culture is for women to be confined to the private sphere at home, raising children, not out in public, being a physical public presence in the way that Vice President Harris is. When you read the the responses and you see how this story, the versions of the story unfolding, in a way, it was law enforcement echoing the language of sexual addiction that led to many raising their hands and raising their voices saying, hold on, wait a minute, this is not okay. And giving that context and the explanations of how faith and religious culture, as you're describing it, plays a role in shaping the way in which women, particularly Asian women, are viewed. What do you see as the biggest challenge now facing evangelical churches? I think the biggest challenge is the upending of knowledge and the ability to have conversations with shared information across a divide, conspiracy theories and anti-science views and all of that politicization of everything in our lives is the biggest challenge, not just for evangelicals, but for Americans. I think we're at a really, really dangerous point in our history and the voices are loud. So, you know, I'm watching people like Eric Metaxas who who went from being this, I don't know, Yale educated up and coming evangelical star who people thought of as an intellectual when he wrote this Bonhoeffer biography to becoming a kind of carnival barker for the Trump administration at their rallies. I look at uh, Pastor Jeffers in in, uh, Dallas and just kind of doubling down on the anti-masking, the the idea that the coronavirus is a a conspiracy, um, is a hoax. You know, we've got this polling data that shows half of Republican men don't plan to be vaccinated. Well, there is, you know, there's there's a pretty strong overlap between half of Republican men and evangelicalism. In fact, I think it was actually half of Republican men who voted for Trump. So it separated out that small percentage of Republican men who did not. So these are going to be evangelicals. They have a exuberance about their own knowledge and their own expertise about things. Joe Schmo on the street is willing to go up against Dr. Fauci on the effectiveness of coronavirus vaccines. It's, it's mind-boggling. And I don't know how you get past that. We don't have a shared language. We don't have any sort of trust in a foundation of knowledge. I don't know. Dr. Julie Ingersoll is a religious studies professor at the University of North Florida and is the author of several books, including Evangelical Christian Women, War Stories in the Gender Battles and Building God's Kingdom Inside the World of Christian Reconstruction. Coming up after the break, my conversation with Chen Zing Han, author of the new book, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists. If you missed any portion of this conversation, you can visit interfaithradio.org to stream the episode, subscribe to the podcast, and sign up for our newsletter. You're listening to Inspired. Stay with us. <laughs> 